Welcome to another Charity Chat podcast with your host, Usman Mughal. Today I'm speaking with three leaders, Iqlaq Hussain, Head of Philanthropy and Partnerships at Orphans in Need, Fellow at the Chartered Institute of Fundraising and Visiting Lecturer at Cass Business School, Richard Lee, Director of Fundraising at Crisis, and Nick Billingham, Managing Director at Charity People. In this conversation, Clark, Richard and Nick share their journeys in the charity sector and what motivates them. We discuss the impact of the pandemic, how have organisations adapted and pivoted in such challenging times and what have been the key learnings of the past 15 months. We explore how organisations can support and empower colleagues with their mental health and emotional well-being the importance of investing in and nurturing talent, and we examine what actions organisations need to take to achieve genuine equity, diversity and inclusion within workplaces. Clark, Richard and Nick also share what they love about the charitable sector, as well as their main frustrations. This podcast is brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Charity People, and here is my conversation with the Clark, Richard and Nick. Thank you, Clark, Richard and Nick, for joining us on Charity Chat today. It's a real pleasure to have you on together and I am excited to cover a wide range of topics with you today. From the impact of the pandemic looking to the future, the emotional well-being of our colleagues and an important topic of equity, diversity and inclusion. But before we get into that, I wanted to get an insight into each of your backgrounds and what really motivated you to join the charity sector. Clark, if I can start with you, please, um, followed by Richard and then Nick. Sure. Uh, thank you, uh, Usman. And uh, thank you so much for inviting and giving this opportunity. It's always good to be uh, speaking on these forums. Uh, Usman, my, my background is uh, um, uh, I, I was a trained economist and I was teaching economics for a couple of years. And every trained economist, as you know, when, when we study economics, we want to make a lot of money and we want to be rich. That's what every economist wants. So being uh, with economic background, that's what I wanted as well. And all my class fellows wanted to, obviously, they are, they are working in bigger banks and they are working in bigger places. But the idea was we'll make money and we'll do something good afterwards. And I, earlier on in my career, I realized that I don't need to make a lot of money to do good. Uh, there are other people's money which can be utilized to to do good in the world in the world and that's where how i explored that there is charity sector where i can utilize my skills to do good in the world to make the changes to see the changes i want to see so that's what really motivates to stay me in the sector that's what brought me in the sector and that's what i do now as a fundraiser as a living and making change at the same time that's what I do, and uh, currently I'm a head of uh, philanthropy and partnerships at uh, Orphans in Need. Uh, I teach uh, at Cass Business School, 
as well as Institute of Fundraising. I'm board member there as well. So there are quite a variety of different things uh, I'm involved with in the sector. So I wouldn't take too long, Usman, on uh, bragging about myself for too long. Thanks, Iqlaq. Thank really you. Great. Over to you, Richard. Uh, so I um, have a really different uh, reason. So I grew up in a place where uh, my dad was a wonderfully uh, strong communist and told me that everybody had uh, equal rights um, and at the same time worked on a factory floor just um, on production line and hated his job with an absolute passion. Um, at the same time, I grew up through a uh, world-wise dyslexic, so spent a lot of my time with people um, essentially just telling me I wasn't quite as clever as, as uh, most as I thought I was, <laughs> which is unusual because that'll flip as life goes on. Um, <clears throat> so I have this, this kind of background where I just, it was drilled into me that people can be incredible, um, but that not everybody gets that opportunity. So that installed social uh, justice into my, uh, into my absolute core. And ever since then, I've just been trying to change the world in different ways. And what I found was, um, uh, is that the thing I can do is, is make money and, and connect people. And that's what I do. So uh, then I've just gone through different iterations of trying to make as much money as I can for various uh, good causes. And the only other thing I'd say about my career history is I've been incredibly lucky that at key moments in my life, um, people, um, uh, people, my managers or, or directors of an organization have taken the time to, to um, speak to me and say, you should do this next. And I genuinely think that if, so when I was at Shelter, um, uh, a lady called Liz Monks, who's uh, no one with us, but was, but was amazing. I was like, I assume you're gonna go and do another job now you've been successful. When I was at Macmillan, uh, the director came along and went, aren't you going to apply for this job? And if different people hadn't taken those moments to be like, hey, you should go for that, I'd have a really different life story to tell, which is just, um, so I think I've been uh, super lucky, is what I would say throughout my career. Thanks, Edmund. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm Nick, I'm the Managing Director of Charity People, um, and we're a, uh, we're a recruitment business that exists to support the sector to recruit better and, and, and more inclusively. I don't usually suffer from imposter syndrome, but um, that's a very real feeling right now because there are thousands of real fundraisers who would probably be a much better place to talk to you about the future of fundraising. But I appreciate the uh, the uh, the invite to, to come and chat. And, and my, my background over the last 10 years has been recruiting fundraising roles. So um, I guess my answers will probably take a, a recruitment spin. I'm afraid that, that just comes quite naturally to me. But, um, but yeah, delighted to be here. I completely fell into recruiting in the charity sector. I was recruiting in the pharmaceutical world and, and, a, and a role presented itself. Um, uh, yeah, I think 11 years ago now, and, and I haven't looked back, and, and I absolutely love um, the variety of organisations that, that I get to work with, um, and, um, and the ability to, to, to actually affect change and, and have an impact on a real variety of causes. That's genuinely motivating for, for me and, and the organisation that, that I now lead. So, um, so yeah, that, that's me, um, and, uh, and thank you once again for, for having me along. I just want to say you know, a huge thanks for sharing your journeys with us. I now wanted to turn to the impact of the pandemic. And we know that this past year has been unprecedented and it has challenged us in so many different ways, both at home, 
in the social aspect, but also in the workplace. How have your organisations adapted to meet the needs of your beneficiaries? And for you, what have been the key learnings that the pandemic has taught the sector? Richard, if I can come to you first, please, and then Iqlaq. Oh, I, and it's, it's it's more than a year now, right? Like it's getting on for a year and a half, which um, uh, which genuinely um, blows my mind a little bit. I think um, there's a thing I have to say before we kind of talk about the organisation, which is that everybody in this country has obviously faced this challenge. And so I'm always really humbled to think how many people have kept supporting charities when their own lives have been uh, a, a kind of a, a vortex of craziness. Uh, so I just kind of, there's a bit of me goes that whilst we're going to talk about what charities have done to adapt and, and to get ready, we kind of need to start with, do you know what? An incredibly high proportion of this country, when going through their own craziness and their own challenges, kept on supporting and doing as much as they could do for charities, which I just think is incredible. That said, that acknowledged, um, I, the things that, um, so again, I think crisis has been really lucky. Our supporters have stuck with us and have enabled us to keep going at the, at the pace that we were going pre-pandemic, which I think is incredibly um, fortunate because I'm aware that a lot of other charities have, had, have been impacted differently. We were basically primarily a face-to-face -face service provision, which um, supporting... Um, people affected by homelessness and those people having more respiratory issues than the general public would have. So actually their health and well-being becomes even, even more impacted by a pandemic that essentially focuses on your, um, on your respiratory system. So it's meant that we've had to change our provision very much from going face-to-face -to, -face to much more digital than I think we'd even envisaged was possible. Um, we also serve at Christmas, where our Christmas um, service provision was about getting a significant proportion of people into one space and then providing care. And again, that was something that we couldn't do. But what we have learned, and I think it's um, uh, really important lessons that are going to flow through for, forever, is that there's a whole lot of people want to engage digitally. It's not a second choice. It's not a next best. There's actually, when you think about people's circumstances they may not want to get on a bus and travel anyway they may they may be digitally natural rather than face-to-face -face natural and to provide digital solutions is not a um it's not a next best solution it's just a good solution and the same thing happened at christmas where we started providing hotel provision rather than um uh, multiple bed provision and actually the people getting that service found it much more valuable for them. It gave them a, their own space. It gave them their own safety, et cetera. And so there's a whole lot of these things that we're taking forward, regardless of when the pandemic ends. And we really hope it ends soon. But um, but regardless, we found that there's, that there's things we have to do that we should do that really are just best practice as opposed to second best practice, which is maybe how they're viewed pre-pandemic. And I think that's... Um, that's just, I mean, that's a really important lesson for the sector, isn't it? But the, the, the thing that strikes me is just flexibility and agility and all these words that kind of uh, spew out. Um, and I think they're important words. We probably just at some point need to discuss what we all mean by them, because I have a real suspicion that we all mean uh, incredibly different um, 
meanings by what, what adaptability means or flexibility means. And they are important because the world's only, I think this is an insight into how much the world's about to change. So I don't think this is it. It's not like, oh, we got through a pandemic and now it's all going to calm down. Like the, the, the pace of change in this world is, is, is probably not going to calm down. So this is a good first starter for us. The, the other thing that I thought was um, uh, really um, helpful for, for us as a response was the fact that we were able to work with lots of other charities. So we provided grants to over 200 other charities across the sector who were able to provide some kind of support to people affected by homelessness. And so it's an absolute acknowledgement that um, no one charity can do this alone. I'll, later in this, in this discussion, I'll talk about charities can't do it alone. But just for now, we'll talk about no one charity can do it alone. And expanding out and, and kind of acknowledging that actually 200 other charities are, are important to making a difference to supporting people in this, in this time of crisis, uh, I think was a really important thing and something that, again, we, we continue to do and now want to to continue to see how we can support others to get to that end goal of ending homelessness. Osman, as you know, we, we are an international charity. So uh, our work is, is in 15 different uh, countries. We, we sponsor over 30,000 orphan children. So during pandemic, uh, of, of course, we, we faced a lot of difficulties, uh, but uh, it was uh, in different countries, the lockdown time was different. In some country, country there was not any lockdown or what they tried to do was uh, kind of like local they localized the lockdown based on which city and which part or which region needed to be locked down so in in that terms uh, we didn't face that much of difficulty in, in reaching out to our beneficiaries than the if you were a local charity within within the UK and uh, during the lockdown you might, your experience, like Richard has mentioned, will be different to ours. So in terms of, in terms of a learning uh, as an organization, Usman, what we learned is that as a charity, uh, we are a little bit more brave now in, in trying different things. Okay. Uh, for example, pre-COVID, if you ask me to put law budget towards digital fundraising, I might say no. Right? But pandemic has put us in, in, uh, in a situation where you didn't have any other option. So you needed to take those risks. And we, we had a phenomenal response uh, through the digital. As, as you know, that Ramadan fundraising in two years uh, for, for larger and uh, bigger charities has increased from 25% to 100%. So if we didn't take those risks, if we didn't make those right uh, decisions at the right time to go at the right platforms in terms of digital, uh, we could have lost a lot of money. So that has taught us that uh, sometimes you, you need to take those risks for the sake of your beneficiary and to safeguard your charity. That, that, that's one of the key learning what we have taught. Another, another element within, within, the, within the learning, within the managing the teams, that everyone has to clock in nine o'clock right to be more effective as a fundraiser so that mindset has shifted that we can still be productive uh, and not everyone needs to be uh, painted with the same brush someone 
might have to uh, homeschool their children while they are working, right? That happened to us as well. So that person might be writing the report or whatever email they, they need to respond, which is not urgent, late in the night, for example. And that's okay. So that's, that's another lesson, like Richard has, has said, that flexibility, adoptability uh, could be different for different charities and also different in different situations as well. Okay, if, 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 if your colleagues are homeschooling parents and some colleagues who are not homeschooling parents uh, and they are single, then obviously you'll be flexible, right? In, in your expectations, in, in your deadlines, in your timelines, uh, all of those things. And we were not before. Pandemic has put us into this situation to realize and actualize this kind of human side as well and managing uh, our, our teams and getting these new skills in uh, managing our teams during digital times. Thank you both. I think excellent points made there. Iklaak, your point about being more brave as a sector. I completely agree with that. We need to be more ambitious in order to serve our beneficiaries more effectively. And Richard, your point around coming up with effective digital solutions is really important. I now wanted to move on the conversation. And you've partly touched on some of these areas. What do you see as a leader of your fundraising department? What do you see as the main opportunities for the sector in the years to come following the pandemic? I think the pandemic has really uh, has really helped us to to move forward, and I think the point about bravery is is really well made. Um, but actually, I'd go I go beyond bravery, and I think fundamentals have have had to shift, and this is this is great for us. So, I've seen. Um, I've seen um, uh, the sector start to come together more and, and, and either work in partnership or merger. And I think both of those are, uh, are great. Um, I've seen the, the digital transition that we've all talked about take a step. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna say, I don't think it's taken a big enough step yet. Um, and there's, there's a lot of room to go in. I've seen, uh, I've seen our ability to accept new um, as a, as a sector, whereas I think um, at one point there was a kind of uh, some givens that I think have been shattered now. Um, and the, the, it's no longer about one or two wise voices kind of saying what should and shouldn't be, but now it's about a wider conversation, which I really welcome. Um, I think that again, just kind of to the flexibility that people don't have to work nine to five. And if we're gonna get the best people to work in the sector, then, it's, then we have to show that flexibility that really allows people to be their best selves at work and to do that in a way that works for them and the organisation at the same time. I think it's really interesting to see um, that the corporate sector is moving into the change space. And it's been known for a little while, like we've all talked about it, it could be happening or and given one or two examples of it happening, but I think you saw some really big strides some, for some very big names starting to go, I'm going to reach out to the community. I'm going to support the community. I'm going to be there for the community. I'm going to be there for individuals. Um, and that was traditionally a, a charity space, and I don't think it is anymore. And I don't think that the, um, that the general public reacted in a, oh, what are you doing, um, uh, Tesco? Why are you doing X or Y? Or, hey, Uber, why are you doing free cab rides? Or, 
whichever example you want to use of providing uh, support and care in a community is no longer um, a given for the charity space. But I think all of these, for me, are really positive because they're all about how we change and transition to whatever change has to be in the future because it isn't the old model. The old model that, that only charity can offer support is, is just that's, that's not going to exist. That's not going to survive going forward. So I think us acknowledging that we can be braver, that we need to be more digitally um, aware and really embrace um, I think the fact that we're going to show flexibility for our staff, the fact that we're going to show flexibility for how supporters engage with the cause are all really positives. They were there before the pandemic, but the pandemic has forced us to move more on those things, which I think therefore starts to set us up in the right direction because we're having more of the right conversations as a sector now. And that gives us a real opportunity to transition into what the sector needs to become. Richard, Iqlaq, over to you. Yes, Osman. Uh, I think I, I totally um, second and agree uh, Richard's point, and I will build on on that and say that some of the local charities done phenomenal work for the local communities during the pandemic. And Osman, that has going to help us to actually lift the image of third sector and charities. And I'm hoping and I'm hopeful that this, this work, uh, the, the public has, has actually seen this the first hand that how helpful and how vital and important the third sector is to, to the local communities and to the vulnerable, vulnerable people and to, uh, during especially the difficult times. So this, this will increase the trust level among the public about the, the public sector. That's, that's one of the the, the opportunity I see coming out of this pandemic. And, and secondly, is, is more trust, like, like Richard has, has, has brilliantly mentioned, that while teams are working digitally, we, we will build, build on this, that we, we trust more our teams. Uh, and this will also help us, this flexibility and working digitally, uh, basically, attracting more diverse knowledge into the sector, whether they are corporate or whether they are BME or uh, whether they are geographically diverse as well. They, they can work from Scotland for a charity based in London digitally. So this, this, this will help us to diversify uh, our talent as well within, within the sector. Uh, and I, I also uh, believe that this, this digital stuff is will help us to reduce the costing as well. Like if we need less office space, we just need uh, hot desking, for example, we don't need uh, big boardrooms for, for meetings, right? For inviting donors in or trust, uh, volunteers in on a regular basis. We can just hire, for example, the places when we need to. So this, this will help to reduce the costing as well. Thank you both. Some really excellent points made there. Richard, your point around partnership and collaboration is one I echo um, entirely. Like you said earlier, that no one charity can solve these huge problems, whether it'll be homelessness, climate change, poverty, and health inequalities. No one charity can solve these 
challenges alone and partnership and collaboration is certainly the name of the game and it's where the sector needs to go and is going and it clark your point around trust is really important for us to prosper as a sector in the years to come trust is the bedrock of that and it's the foundation in which we grow from so thank you for your great points and very well made as usual the external environment in which we're operating is still uncertain there are conversations happening of there whether there's going to be another lockdown another spike whether that be in the UK or abroad um in your case in particular so i wondered how are you leading your teams in such in in times of such uncertainty and still developing a vision for the future how are you balancing that richard if i can come to you first and then iklok and the first thing is to really acknowledge it's a challenge um uh and i think um one of the things that that i've learned is to try and um show my vulnerabilities more and that's not necessarily a natural place for me to for me to go mm. so uh and that that varies from really small things like just making sure that i'm clear that i am taking a lunch hour and that i'm going to go and go for a walk or walk my dog and i don't have to be stapled to my desk between 9 and 5 and that uh it's okay to not do zoom calls for 9 hours and that if you want to stop work at 3 and pick up work at 8 because that suits your lifestyle and communicate these things and just make sure that it's really clear i think that's um i think that's part of it i think i made a um i genuinely made a bit of a mistake in in when i was working with the team i've not taken of normally we'd have had a half day away or a day away and we'd have sat around and we'd have really mulled over everything and kind of really uh and i got into this space where i get really worried about zoom culture and people being on zoom too much and people being really busy and tried to skip some parts of the process and i and that genuinely just was unhelpful to everybody and so we've had to retrace and be like there's some things that we did pre lockdown that we just need to keep doing and and to give them the time that they always needed and actually we've got to make sure that people have time to do the BAU but to consider the new and actually we're throwing and asking for so much new that we need to create that that space that space for people to really reflect and think and to and to and to develop and i think the other element for me is to make sure that people are given this environment we always talk about kind of creating an environment where people thrive and there's a real need to try and make sure we do that and to think what that means so um is that about training course like i you know i think training has a place but it's not the only place that you help people develop so how are we making sure that we're giving people the opportunity to develop and grow in this in this new world and then fitting all that together in what feels like a busier time so i feel like i have more emails and i feel like i am in more meetings and i i uh, i remember this is quite sad and, and ages me really badly i do not come off well out of this story but i remember when first um emails were introduced and the cc capability became really simple and so you cc'd in hundreds of people whereas before you had to print out each different uh letter and so you cc'd only the people you needed and that's now happening in the meeting culture where you just like i'm just going to invite everybody and you're now having kind of meetings of 20 or 30 people whereas before you'd have had a meeting of eight because that's what the room took and we've got to kind of get back into this space where we really value people's time so that they can grow and do what they need to do and not have um 
everybody being too busy to move forward. And I think if we can do that, this becomes a really exciting space because, again, as, as, as was said previously, we are open to really diversifying the sector in, in all sorts of ways, in geographical, in cultural, and that can become a really vibrant space. But if we don't give the, the time and the space for people to grow into that, then, it's, then it just becomes... Um, a bit of a production line, and that that could really stifle us. I think you mentioned earlier on that there are still international variants, and uh, we could still expect more variants coming through. So we are planning that what we'll be doing in next next six months or in, in three months. But we are constantly checking in as well uh, within the team, especially within the fundraising, that if this is possible, or should we be going ahead with this, or should we be making this payment to lock this date in or lock this venue in uh, so we are constantly reviewing while we are uh, planning for the for for next six months uh, and and there's no other way to do uh, Usman at, at, at this time uh, apart from uh, we, we we check uh, constantly within the teams within the within the space and external environment we want to work in and that's what we are trying to do at the moment. We know that COVID-19 has been a challenging year and there will be challenges for the years to come. But equally, it has shown the resilience of our sector, the organisations, the employees and the volunteers. Can you give an example of an organisation that you've been impressed by in how they've dealt with the pandemic? And Nick, if I can come to you first in your capacity as a recruitment agent working with lots of organisations across the sector. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there are so many inspirational case studies of organisations adapting. Um, so it was really hard to, to think of, of one. But um, the one that springs to mind is a place we're working with at the moment, which is called um, the British Exploring Society. Now, they're quite a small sort of sub three million pound youth development charity. And their model is to take kids um, and really um, take them on, on expeditions. So really cool adventures um, to uh, it could be to, to the Arctic. It could be to the jungles. It could be uh, just to, to Snowdonia. And it's the sort of thing that you would, you know, I would have been really understanding if they'd have just furloughed all their staff you know at the start of that lockdown and thought well we can't do anything there's no travel that's allowed there's literally nothing we can do um but they I was so impressed that you know they stayed so true to their mission they created a virtual destination that they could take their young people on um, and challenge them in different ways that's that's predominantly through video it's through zoom um but it's still trying to teach them um and challenge them in in the ways that they would have done in a physical space and and it's been really successful and, and the feedback from young people is really positive and what they're left with is something that's going to complement their previous service delivery you know this isn't something that's just going to be left to one side once you know we hope that the pandemic come, comes to a close over the next few months or year or so and um, this is going to become you know a, a sort of fundamental part of their service delivery and I, I just think that's it would have been so easy to think that they couldn't do anything uh, and instead they've they've created something new that I think will, will shape the organization in the future so um so that was what sprung to mind for me. Any clock? 
Uh, yes, Osman, with, with, with my experience and the sector I work in and represent is obviously from Muslim charity sector. And we've seen so many Muslim charities doing phenomenal work. And there are reports out there published as well that traditionally Muslim charities have not been put in a good light. But during pandemic, they, they have served their local communities uh, with various different stakeholders and they have raised much more money than ever before. So I think uh, I'm, I'm actually delivering a talk at the uh, Institute of Fundraising Convention that how mainstream sector can learn from remote Ramadan, from the experience of uh, Muslim charities. So I think as a sector, whether Muslim or non-Muslim, they, like I, I made this point before as well, that sector has done phenomenal work. Yeah, really important point about making sure that we're still productive and effective in our fundraising, even if it is remote. A lot of great organisations that have done great work, particularly the Ramadan Tent Project comes to mind, um, hosting the first ever Ramadan conference. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Some great work being done in the community and engaging the wider society um, as well. So, you know, a couple of years ago, doing an open iftar at Wembley Stadium. And I know there's the plans at the Ramadan Tent Project for that long to continue. I now wanted to turn to something that we have briefly discussed, but I really wanted to focus and delve into it a little bit more. What are your organisations doing to support the mental and emotional well-being of your colleagues at this time? We know that covid um, has impacted colleagues um, and we've already discussed that we had furloughing working from home homeschooling and increased pressure to fundraise Richard if I can come to you on that first and then Iqlaq and Nick sure so I think um this is a space where I've been really proud to work for crisis crisis is a values driven organization anyway and always has been and those values that we've really stepped into those um, during this time and put people at the centre of, of our decision-making, which I think is, um, is is really valuable. I think we, we, we very quickly as an organisation put together a group that thought through each of the issues as they came along and allowed us to really flex our approach as things changed. And I think in some ways that was the hardest thing to deal with was just the lack of certainty over a year and a half period is, 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 is draining. Um, I think we've done really well at acknowledging the challenges and acknowledging that each person is an individual that goes through their own journey and, and, and we have to react to that individual set of circumstances. And sometimes there are groups who are going through similar circumstances, but even then you have to be quite careful that just because two groups of people have, have young children doesn't mean that, that their situation is exactly the same. It means that they have one shared challenge that they have to adapt to. I think we've absolutely uh, on things like furlough uh, made sure that we've been a, we've been lucky enough to be able to kind of keep a full pay rate which I think has given people that certainty um, there's been very little where we've had to where we um, forced furlough, furlough on people essentially we've been very lucky not to have to do that I think that we um, have tried to give people time and space and support to adapt to the new technology. So it feels weird to say it now, but when Zoom first came along, that was a strange place to find yourself. And we started off on uh, Skype for business, which was uh, not great. Um, and then had to move to Zoom and, da -da -da -da, and, ju and just kind of trying to support people through those. And equally though, I think that the, the everybody in the organization was kind 
and one of the things that I'm kind of pride, pride, uh, proudest about is just the kindness shown between colleagues. So I think there's one thing is the organization is, is works in the right way, but actually if you can instill a culture where people are kind to each other, that's really powerful. And, 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 and I think that's, that's, that those would be the big things. I mean, there's lots of detail, but I don't want to go into everything. Can uh, uh, that be what? That's what struck me about our organisation. Thanks, Richard. Clark, over to you, and then Nick, please. Uh, yes, I absolutely uh, agree with uh, Richard's point that uh, during pandemic, uh, we've been managing teams, working with colleagues, and practicing basically more kind of more empathy you know, uh, and, and actually contextualizing that empathy as well. Like Richard has just uh, mentioned that two groups of people have children. Doesn't mean they have same kind of arrangements to manage those children. One might be having a sport from, uh, from, from, uh, from their family members or the partner is not working or there's a, a elder sibling in the house who can look after. Uh, so the other, other person might not have that. So we need to contextualize individual to individual and practice more empathy. Another thing is if uh, what we at our organization, we are very open about it, especially during the pandemic, that you can book your annual leave uh, whenever you need, if you're feeling like you need some time off. So there's no hard and fast rule that you, you can't do that. So especially during pandemic, you can go and, and book your leave and then take that much needed rest you need to reboot uh, and 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 recharge yourself to to come back and then obviously having this open uh, door culture like during during pandemic and during lockdown is weird to use that uh, term right open door but uh, i'm using this deliberately even in in a digital time that uh, if 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 i need to speak with a manager or if someone needs to speak to me and they can they can drop me an email or uh, message on the teams that this is what they want to discuss like uh, this is what matters to them not like what is planned ahead for a week so it's it's like open door policy to give people more kind of uh, flexibility and openness and and a trust trust is is a key thing that when people are suffering they they are not suffering in in silent they they can trust other colleagues even if it's not their manager they can they can speak to another colleague as a friend that this is what uh, they 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 are going through and that friend might help them to put this into context or into into lead, might lead them to 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 other places which 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 can be more effective we, we did a uh, survey with Charity Comms earlier in the year, and um, one of the results that, that came up in that was that 34% of the 500 or so respondents felt that their job was negatively impacting on their mental health. Um, and I mentioned that just because that is a serious, serious figure. And, and if we assume that that is extrapolated uh, across, um, across the sector, we we are we, we're living in a you know a, a mental health crisis, and I think it's it's you know that that's the first thing to to sort of acknowledge um, is that you know leaders really need to realise that and be quite intentional with their plans to um, to to try and alleviate that stress from from their employees. So um, 
it's it's difficult and I don't have all the answers for exactly how we can do that but um, you know some of the things that we've done at charity people is is investing in uh, employee assistance programs so if organizations don't have that I would thoroughly recommend it um we're trying to to encourage online socials we're trying to encourage people to to take time out of their day to walk and talk and, and connect with one another um and all of that stuff whilst it seems quite sort of trite um on an individual case it, it does add up and i think you know it, it can have a real impact on on the the culture of your of your workplace and then the only other point i'd make um which is just as an aside really it's been an increasing um factor of of ceo searches that i've been involved with um this year this need for really empathetic leadership and, and great to hear you both talking about that sort of recognizing the importance of that um and and finding leaders who who can manage in a really real authentic and empathetic way seems to be of more importance which is really encouraging bearing in mind what i've just said about the, the sort of mental health crisis that i think we are we're in we, we a lot of people just don't realize it completely agree Nick. Uh, empathetic leadership is really important and Walk, trying to um, walk in somebody else's shoes is really important. So great points, everyone. And an important area which has come to the fore in the last year has been equity, diversity and inclusion within the charity sector. And it's become an even prominent issue, particularly after the murder of George Floyd on the 25th of May 2020. So what does that term mean to you? What does equity, diversity and inclusion mean to you? And what steps do you think organizations must take to ensure that genuine EDI practice is embedded within their workplace, which will no doubt ultimately enable us to effectively serve our beneficiaries in the years ahead? Clark, if I can come to you first, please, and then Richard and Nick. Osman, as you know, that, that, that the report who is, who is in the room from uh, the latest report has, hasn't gave us a good picture that uh, there is still uh, much needed work needs to be done. What I feel as a, as a, as a, as a fundraiser within the sector, that uh, sector has taken too long to remain at that space where we are still tick boxing. We are still, we started this conversation three to four years ago, and we are still at the place where we are tick boxing. We are not actually moving from this place or this space to another we are not transitioning very quickly where we can actually say today and Usman, we can tell you, you know what, Usman, there is this report which is very, very positive. There is this statistic which is uh, wonderful. We, unfortunately, I, I don't have those statistics and no one can claim that, that they, we, we have as a sector moved to that positivity space in terms of EDI. So it's, it's still a long way to go and there's more commitment is needed from the sector. Another point before I move on is that the EDI needs to be discussed within the organizations from top to bottom and bottom to top. It should not be just the leadership conversation. That leaders within the closed room, they are just tick boxing and making this policy. Did they ask their volunteers? Did they ask their trustees? Did they ask their leadership team? Did they, are they getting involved other stakeholders? Are they getting involved bringing people from the outside, those who are 
those who are specialists about it and they can talk about it. Are we talking as an organization to organization to each other as well? That you know what, we see you are brilliant at it. Can you share some practices with us? So it needs to be like a 360 discussion, not a closed room, closed door discussions anymore. And that will help us to quickly move on and transition to the next, space, the next stage to make the progress. Thank you, Clark. Very well-made points. Nick, over to you and then Richard, please. Yeah, thank you. Um, it's it's such a big topic, isn't it? We could probably do like a whole podcast on on uh, on just uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion. But but really pleased to hear, see it on the agenda. The, the the sector has a massive issue with this, and um, and there is still a huge amount of work to be done. I think you know strides have been made over the last twelve months, and I think there's some momentum that that really does need to be continued. But um, yeah, across from well from bottom to top I think that there's just still not enough being done and I, I agree with it like I think there is a lot of box ticking that, that is going on um, in a lot of organizations where they haven't really fully grasped the need for why this is so important and I think that's that's my first point to every, anyone who's listening is just how important it is for you as an individual to influence internally in your organizations particularly at leadership level to ensure that the argument for diverse teams is fully understood and if they're not bought in on the moral argument then there is a really strong commercial reason why CEOs and any other leader should be really bought into building diverse teams because they they are more innovative and they make better decisions and they perform better commercially so you know that's a really compelling argument that that needs to get across more quickly to to the wider sector um, and so that that would be my first suggestion for for you know for anyone who, who's sort of starting to to look into this and, and wants to 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 make change, um, and then we just need organisations to invest in it. You need, we need to spend money. This isn't something that you can just say. Well, we've um, we've anonymised the CVs when they're reaching um, hiring managers and, and feel like, right, we've done that. Or we've hired someone of non-white ethnicity to our senior management team, so we're now more diverse. This is a continuous process and to really affect and achieve change that, that needs to happen, organisations need to spend money. Um, and and, and it's it, but, but see it as an investment because it will be returned. And I genuinely believe that. And, and you know, it's something that, that we as an organisation are really passionate and don't underestimate the part that we as recruiters have to play in this. But there's a whole lot of work that needs to happen before you reach recruitment stage to ensure that if you are going to recruit uh, and seek uh, to speak to a more diverse audience, you've built an inclusive culture and you've built something that is welcoming to people who don't necessarily look or talk in the way um, of the people that you've historically hired. So um, as I say, huge topic, I could go on for hours, but I'll, I'll pass over to Richard. I mean, a lot's been said that, and I agree with absolutely every word. I think uh, I'm, I would go be, I'd go even to, look, difference is brilliant, right? We have to stop uh, trying to tick boxes, et cetera, et cetera, and just go, the greater the difference we can have in our organisation, the more we can create an environment and a culture that helps everybody to thrive in their own right, on their terms, and become the best that they want to become, is how we create the greatest change. So until we're doing that, 
we're not actually living up to, 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 to what we're setting out to do. And as the sector that is meant to be kind of most people-focused, most socially aware, to be lagging behind, lagging behind many in the commercial sector, it's just like, I, I, we, we just need to own that, right? We just need to own that. And I think we have to talk really openly about what's happening in our own organisations and, and it has, has been said, like, let's not have muttered conversations. Let's just own it and change it. Because until we do that, I do worry about the box ticking. So I worry it's been over a year, like the year anniversary of George Floyd has passed. And lots of people have said lots of very well-meaning things. But have we seen a huge shift or have we seen a, a shift that we can measure? I'm not, I'm not sure that we have other than Facebook mentions. And Facebook mentions is not how we create change. So... I just think if we're the sect we think we are, we have to own this and be really proud of where we've got to. And that means outperforming every other sector, which means we love difference. We don't just think it's the right thing to do. We embrace it and enthuse about it. And we really get into the challenges of how we create an environment where everybody can thrive, because that's a really hard environment to create, actually. But one that we, we more than any other sector should be doing, and we're not there. And I think we have to just challenge ourselves. Excellent points, everyone. And I go back to my earlier point that I made that if we as a sector are going to solve some of the social ills in society, we are going to need diverse voices at the table. We're going to need uh, diversity of thought and we're going to need lived experience. Another point that I would touch on very briefly is the point of intersectionality. Intersectionality is so important, is often left out of this conversation. And I think you've referred to um, the murder of George Floyd and the shocking lack of ethnic and um, racial diversity within our sector. But I think EDI goes beyond that. Our sector predominantly has majority of females, but how many females occupy leadership positions? So it's important that we look at EDI in the holistic sense uh, and we make sure that we as organisations are creating an environment where everyone belongs because where you have an environment where everyone belongs, that is the birthplace of innovation. That's where you can come up with true innovative ideas to transform our sector. And more importantly, as Nick mentioned, in terms of the consequences, if we don't, if we don't, we're not going to be there for our beneficiaries in the future. And Iklaak, your point you made, we need a 360 approach from top to bottom and bottom to top. So I really enjoyed that, that comment. We like to end with two quick questions. Can each of you describe one area of frustration within the sector and one thing that you love about the sector? Nick, if I can come to you first, Richard, and then Iklark, please. Yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, it's been quite enthusing to hear both Richard and Iklark talking about um, taking a few more risks, because I think that's definitely been my biggest frustration with the sector in, in the sort of 10 years that I've been working with it, um, particularly from a point of view of, of recruitment. You know, it's always been really challenging to hire great fundraisers. And, and a really big part of that is because it's really difficult to get into fundraising if you don't have fundraising experience. And, and that is fueling the, the diversity issue in itself. But, um, but at some point, we're gonna have to see some, some organizations Taking a bit more of a taking a bit more of a risk, um, and I think that will that will have a real positive impact on on the diversity front. So, so so that um, I'm hopeful for uh, to, to you know I'm hopeful that that will improve 
um, over the you know, after the last 12 months that we've seen. And then the, the, the positive thing is, is kind of linked to that in the, the, the people that we've got on, on, on a daily basis. I'm inspired by people in the sector. And I think there's so many incredible people who are so um, creative and so driven and so um, personable and passionate and all these brilliant things. And, and I think that that needs looking after that needs protecting and um, uh, ensuring that they don't go anywhere, you know, because you've got to retain the, the best talent as well as um, just seeing a little bit more appetite for bringing in someone who perhaps doesn't talk the talk just yet. Thanks, Nick. Richard? Uh, so my frustration would be that at times I fear that we as a sector think we own change and support uh, and that we need to um, acknowledge and welcome in anybody, everybody that wants to be involved in, in whatever that change or support function might be uh, and stop being so close to, to how we get to, to solutions. Uh, and I think we can, be, we can do way more of that. Uh, and the love thing actually is just the amount we're prepared to share with each other in order to make for a, for a better uh, fundraising or charity community uh, and the openness and support that, that I just don't think you find in every other sector. And so I, I really hope we never lose that, but I hope we welcome lots of other sectors into our, into our change club. Over to you, Kirk. Thank you, Usman. Uh, I love uh, this, this bond culture within the sector. You reach out to anyone within the sector with any help. I need help with this or uh, can you please mentor me or uh, I need to have this information about something. People will come back to me. People will help you. If they don't know, they will go out of their way and they will find someone who can help you. So I, I really love this element of our sector. And what frustrates me is as a sector, we take learning and development as a cost, not as an investment. And that really frustrates me because you see any other sector, people send people on, on sabbaticals or uh, doing degrees or masters or whatever trainings and learning and development, the company will take as an investment, like this person will come back or wherever this person will go, even if it doesn't come back or stay longer with us, this person within our industry will remain in our industry and it will make change, that change happen. And, and that's how they, they, they categorize that as an investment. But we are fearful of, uh, uh, of, of, of categorizing uh, cost which comes to learning and development as an investment because we think this person might move on or fundraiser don't stay with us more than 18 months. So why we should be spending money on them? But what we don't realize is that fundraiser, Nick can tell us better on this statistic, the fundraiser is not moving out of the industry. He's just moving around the charity. So if we all start chipping in and start investing in people, we are investing in our people and in, uh, ultimately in our sector. So the people are not going out of the industry. They are staying within the industry. So that, that is my frustration, that we need to change this, this mindset of uh, training and development knowledge, creation or uh, knowledge, adoption or knowledge uh, as a whole, as a cost. Great points, everyone. And thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure to talk to you all today for sharing your wisdom, experience and insights. I've genuinely enjoyed it. And thank you so much.
thank you to Iqlaq, Richard and Nick for speaking with us today. It was a fascinating and wide-ranging conversation, touching on areas such as digital innovation and solutions, building trust, being brave and ambitious as a sector, partnership working, collaboration, developing our talent, taking the lead on EDI and mental health, and sharing the successes and best practice of organisations in the past 15 months. We hope you found this conversation insightful and please do share your comments with us on social media or on our email, charitychatpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and that leads me to thank our corporate sponsors, Charity People, our platinum sponsor, Magda Aksumit for our website design and Forrester Fools who have been playing throughout and are playing us out now.